0: Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Sergio Losa, Assistant Professor of Spanish and Director of the Spanish Heritage Language Program at the University of Oregon. Losa's interests include Spanish Heritage Language Education and Pedagogy, Linguistics, Sociolinguistics, U.S. Spanish, and Critical Language Awareness. Losa's publications include Heritage Language Teaching, Critical Language Awareness Perspectives for Research and Pedagogy, co-edited with Sarah Boudry, and Heritage Language Program Direction, Research into Practice, co-authored with Sarah Boudry. He has also published book chapters and articles in journals such as Studies of Second Language Acquisition, Critical Inquiry in Language Studies, Language Awareness, Language Testing, Languages, and International Multilingual Research Journal. As a 2023-2024 Oregon Humanities Center's Faculty Research Fellow, Professor Losa is working on a project titled Innovation in Spanish Heritage Language Program Administration, Development and Outcomes of a Latinx
1: Ambassador Program. Thanks, Sergio, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. So first, tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? So I was born in Phoenix, Arizona born and raised, um, and my parents are immigrants from uh, Mexico. Uh, my dad's from Guanajuato, my mom's from Durango, and they met here in the US. Um, so I, I grew up in the Southwest, and um, we were kind of having this conversation a little bit before we started recording, but you know, it, it was difficult growing up um, as a Spanish-speaking, US-born um, Latino in Arizona. You wanna give us a little bit of background on the politics of that moment? Yeah, so, you know, growing up, um, we had bilingual education, essentially, um, in public education. And because the Latinx population was growing so much um, during the 90s, um, in particular in Phoenix, a lot of uh, kids like me um, grew up at home speaking only Spanish, uh, learning it with our parents, our family, so then we would get to school, and we were um, essentially monolingual in Spanish. And so the school system had to teach us English. Um, and so lots of folks have written about this phenomenon, but there was essentially something called language panic that happened at the time, and it happened in California as well. And so a series of laws were uh, were basically um, promulgated where it was illegal to teach in Spanish in public education. Those were called the English only laws of the 90s. Um, There was Proposition 227 in California, and then there was a copycat legislation in Arizona called Proposition 203. Later, there was also another legislation um, that declared English the official language of the state. So as we know, we don't have an, uh, an official language at the national level, but states can do what they want to do. So they can can choose to declare English as the official state language. And that impacted me significantly because um, I went from uh, being able to express myself and being able to develop my uh, literacy skills, for example, in Spanish alongside English, to all of a sudden not being able to communicate with my teachers, right? Uh, My teachers no longer spoke Spanish it was illegal for them to speak Spanish to us in school. They could lose their jobs. Um, I remember our, our parents were really involved in school. They would go to the parent-teacher meetings, and then after that law um, passed, I remember there was less and less um, participation from our parents, and um, there were a lot of discourses in the public at the time, and a lot of our immigrant parents bought into the, the idea that school was to teach us English. English is what we needed to um, thrive uh, later on in our, for, for our futures, right? Um, so it, it was difficult and th- that was, I, would, I always tell people that's sort of the switch that was flipped where I, I went from enjoying school mm-hmm. and, and feeling like I belonged to feeling like I didn't belong and, and, and hating school. Um, and so as I, as I grew up um, in Phoenix, um, there were so many anti-immigrant le- uh, legislations that, that came up over the years and so English became my dominant language, and I felt like I was leaving behind my Spanish um, as I grew up. And it's an essential part of who I am and, and how I stay connected with my family, with, um, with people back in, in Mexico, for example. So, so language has always been something personal, yes, but you know, early on, I, I found out that it was something political. Language is a political act, right? Especially when you belong to a minoritized community Right, that's often um, being debated about or, or spoken about on the news or there's always controversy surrounding your community. right? So that as a child, you, you kind of grow up to, to see these things um, more visibly.
0: So then just make the connection between the st- what you've just told us and the importance of
1: the Spanish heritage language programs. So, so any sociolinguist, um, which is what I am, I'm, I'm a scholar who, who's interested in language and society, Um, questions of ideology, questions of power, questions of um, language attitudes and individuals. And it's not surprising that a lot of young people, a lot of Latinx um, kids grow up uh, not having access to um, Spanish language education, obviously. And there uh, there are attitudes that disparage the type of Spanish that we speak here in the US, right? It's one that exists and thrives in uh, English-speaking countries, so so we're we're multilingual. Our Spanish is different, right? We've all heard the the label "Spanglish." Spanglish is actually an umbrella term for many different linguistic phenomenon, and so that kind of Spanish is often um, yeah. looked down upon. Our own family members that are, that are coming from Mexico or Central America or what have you make fun of us. They they, they, they kind of say, "Oh, well, that's not how you really should be saying," or or you're ruining the language, right? And so. So we're living in a, in, a, in a country that promotes English monolingualism, right? To be fully American, you, you should only speak English. And then we're living in, in our own context where our own families look down upon how we speak Spanish. So that causes what's called language shift. So if it wasn't for new immigrants coming to this country, most likely Spanish would, would be lost in the U.S., within three to four generations, there is no language maintenance, intergenerational language maintenance. But uh, by the time that Latinos get to the third or fourth generation, they no longer speak Spanish. So that so the immigrants coming in is what replenishes um, Spanish in this country, and we still have a lot of immigrants coming. So if you're a Latinx a Spanish heritage
0: speaker mm-hmm. and you come to the university, just not necessarily university. You could, typically you go to college in the right. U.S. Right. Right and so you said well you've, you, you need to take spanish take spanish 101 mm-hmm. so what happens when that when that
1: that kid goes into that kind of class so so typically if uh, you know whether they go into a spanish class in high school or even if they come to a spanish 101 here at the university it's it's inappropriate for um, kids like me right people like me um we usually come from our communities with strong oral skills um a strong understanding of the the culture Um, like i said spanglish right so different dialectal um, uh, uh, a different dialectal variety Um, and so that kind of pedagogy which is to teach somebody who doesn't know spanish at all uh, teach spanish as a second language is highly inappropriate thematically inappropriate and it takes the approach of um learning to dissect the language, lo- look at the small bits of grammar and phonetics, uh, conjugations and, and piece those things together to make larger meaning, right? that That's when you're learning Spanish as a second language. For Latinx kids, it's the opposite. You already have ability to communicate. You, you can create larger meaning and they're native speakers, right? It's like if you go to an English speaker on the street and say like, hey man, what's the subjunctive in English? They're gonna say, what? <laughs> But, but finish the sentence, I wish I were taller, right? That's a subjunctive. So, so, so our, our Latinx kids already have that knowledge to speak Spanish and they have to work backwards to understand the language a little bit more, but more than anything, be able to express themselves, right? to write, to read more, um, to, to figure out ways that they can use their Spanish um, in their professions. Right, and their future aspirations as professionals. So that, that's kind of like the idea of a, of a Spanish heritage language classroom. Um, but I, I, you know, part of my project, and, and we'll get into this later, it, it's been the case and, and starting you know, in the 80s, this is when my field started to kind of emerge. People started to notice that uh, you know, in the 80s that, that Latinx kids were usually placed in high school and college into remedial Spanish classes. right because they didn't fit in, in the typical, traditional Spanish courses that were meant to teach Spanish as a second language. Mm-hmm. So in these remedial courses, um, Latinx kids would basically be subjected to grammar drills and fill in the blanks and lit comparative lists where they were trying to eliminate all those Spanglish features that they have, right? That's how they used to teach Spanish. It was a subtract, uh, subtractive curricular model. Mm-hmm. And when researchers started to notice that like, hey, that's not fair, that's actually discriminatory, then the field emerged in the 90s to try and come up with something different, a different model to teach Latinx kids their own heritage language. And a lot of what we do is to try and um, foster linguistic pride, um, positive attitudes, uh, to try and uh, expose them to different uh, Spanish-speaking cultures, to try and encourage them to maintain their heritage language. The ultimate goal of my field is to figure out ways to keep that language shift from happening, to try and, cons- um, you know, rescue Spanish from disappearing, right? And I, and I always make the disclaimer that yeah, Spanish is a colonial language. It was implicit in the subjugation of indigenous peoples, right? Um, in Mexico, right, in the southwest of the U.S., so we so always have to keep that in mind. But in the context of the U.S., sp- uh, Spanish is the language that my mom, for example, it, 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 it's, it's the language um, in which she experiences uh, discrimination, for example, so, so we also have to look at the nuance of, of what Spanish means here in the U.S. So how many kids, how many students are in the program? Uh, currently, we serve around 200 students. Um, we actually just opened um, some more sections. So that's really exciting because here at the UO, we know that the Latinx population is uh, growing and, and and that's really exciting for us and for the university as a whole.
0: So one of the things that you do in that program is called the
1: Student Leadership
0: Program. Right. So, so tell us about that.
1: So. So the, the program here at the UO is, is, is fundamentally based on critical language awareness. And critical language awareness um, is, is the approach of f- developing students' um, sense of the sociopolitics of language to have content in the class that, that renders legible to them the ways in which language is uh, something sociopolitical and to be able to get to understand those issues and be able to reflect upon their own experiences, just like what I just, you know, did at the beginning of this interview, right? Mm-hmm. Have that self-awareness and, and that criticality when it comes to language. And so they, they gain all these critical abilities um, and they, they become sociolinguists, basically. And what we've thought about in our program very carefully is, OK, we're, we're developing this critical consciousness, right? We do a really good job at that. And my own research shows that this approach is really effective in developing um, that perspective. But we don't necessarily, in my field, we don't have any evidence that suggests that they do something with that knowledge after they leave the classroom. Mm -hmm. We make a lot of claims in my field that critical language awareness um, enables social change and it it, it fosters their agency to, to disrupt these dominant discourses about who they are in language, right, in society but we don't actually have any evidence of that, right? We're just kind of saying that it is right? possible. So the we've developed the student ambassador program as a way for students to take what they're learning outside the classroom walls, to become advocates for multilingualism, um, to kind of challenge these hegemonic notions, and to spread the idea amongst their fellow peers that, hey, you know, the, these language related issues matter, they matter for their community. And so, This uh, student ambassador program um, provides this opportunity. Um, We hire between three to four students that have taken all the SHL courses Mm -hmm. um, and we pay them uh, to be our advocates on campus. They organize events, um, they connect with other student groups on campus, they partner with other groups to um, facilitate different events. Um, and we've, we've done everything from uh, movie night to uh, how do you, you know, uh, learn more about graduate school to, um, hey, let's just hang out and, and let's play games and talk about language. So, so it, it's a way to center the student's voice and have them do some of the work that instead of me doing, right, have the, have the young people do it, right? Have them be, you know, be engaged with their own community.
0: So tell us a little bit about how that program is helping you gather the evidence you need to to demonstrate that the programs have this kind of long-term benefit.
1: Um, so, would you like me to tell you a little bit about the study design and
0: tell my, yeah. tell us about the project you're working on at the OHC?
1: Yeah. So, essentially, because they're they're learning critical language awareness in the classroom and they're really well prepared, what I'm doing is I'm documenting uh, what it is they're doing, right? So, so how how they're engaging with the community and then once, once they're essentially in the position for a year, at the end I interview them right individually and have them talk to me about their experiences as a bilingual leader. And then of course I engage in, in, in focus interviews as a group. And it's a lengthy process because if you think about it, um, they're bilingual leaders, uh, student ambassadors for a whole year. And I've been collecting data for about three years now. And so I have a small sample size of only eight, but if you think of how many years that took to, so, so you can imagine the data is really rich. Um, it's really in-depth and they, they have a lot of insight um, into kind of what gap um, they're filling here at the university. Hmm. Um, I can kind of tell you what I want so sure. far finding. Yeah, sure. Um, so some of the, some of the findings um, that I'm seeing in, in all these interviews is that They can't stop talking about how the SHL program prepared them to engage with their own community on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're talking about how the SHL program is a a welcoming environment that makes them feel validated, uh, seen, represented, and academically supported because our program offers mentoring, sort of that one-on-one mentoring, right? That first-gen students often need. Mm they're reflecting on their instructors' um, personality, how instructors know how to work with them, that they're passionate, friendly, understanding, accepting of who they are, right? Of their language, of, of, of who they are as people, of their prior experiences. Um, and then they talk about how powerful it was to learn about language variation, right? Um, language is so taken for granted in society. We have so many assumptions about what good, good English is, What good Spanish is and what is bad language, right? And it's usually tied to people. Bad bad language is usually tied to minoritized people, right? You're Latino, you're black, you're indigenous. Those are typically the people who, who are pointed to as having bad language or social class, right? Poor people have bad language. So they they can come to terms with these issues and and, and they're not okay with it. So so their, their discourses show that they, it was something very significant to learn about language variation, right? And their critical understanding of language and, and society. So, so as student ambassadors, another um, important theme that has emerged in, in my interviews and focus groups is that they're driven by a gratitude to give back to a program that has given them so much, right? So they're, they're, they're grateful um, for the experience and they want to make sure that other students also have a similar um, experience, that other students are impacted by what we're doing here at the UO, and so it, it's kind of like this reciprocal, right? That this is how I'm going to give back to my program, um, and so they they've pointed specifically to the pride that they feel by that they feel by helping amplify Latinx representation on campus because they're you know. It changes um, depending on their availability, but they're essentially everywhere, right? They're in all. They're connected with all the clubs, right? They're talking to the multiple stakeholders. Um, they're connected to the Latinx Studies minor, for example. We partner with them a lot. Um, we partner with Mecha, um, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and they're interested in building inter-campus uh, connections. They feel that the At times, the different Latinx groups are are siloed sometimes and disconnected and disjointed, so they feel like it's their duty to kind of liaison between different groups and and kind of help facilitate a community. Um, Something that came up in the the data that uh, I wasn't expecting is that they appreciated looking behind the curtains of academia, mm-hmm. looking at, um, so since it's a bit of a like a junior administrative position to yeah, have them yeah. be so involved in what we do administratively, so they were really grateful to and, and they found it interesting to see how academia really works, right? To see the behind the scenes of bureaucracy and and to see how uh, funding really works and, and to see the reality of um, you know that that sometimes being in the humanities is hard, right? <laughs> so, so, so they were they found that really, really interesting, and they wanted to learn more. Mm-hmm. But they also developed um, significant relationships relationships with other faculty mm-hmm. that they had. not You know, otherwise they would have never met, they would have never worked with. So they developed like these close relationships with other people in Romance languages in our department. Um, and so, so far, I'm still looking through the data, but th- these are some. Um, significant themes that have kind of came out of that, of that work. Do you, have any of these uh, ambassadors graduated yet? Yeah, we, um, let's see, all of them have and some of them have gone into nonprofits. Uh-huh. Uh, but one of our students, uh, her name is Jessie, um, she, we're really proud of her in particular because she, she considers, she started off as a receptive bilingual and what that means is that as a Latina, she understood more Spanish th- th- than she could speak, mm-hmm. right? So we, we, you know, for my Latinos out there, right, we know that one Latino who understands a whole lot, but you know, can't produce, and they're probably generationed out, or maybe they're bicultural, or maybe uh, they're first generation or second generation, but along the way, something in their lives uh, pushed them to become more English dominant. Mm-hmm. So Jesse started with our very first SHL class and she took all the classes and majored in linguistics as well. And she is now a PhD student, um, you know, wanting to specialize in in this particular field. So we're really proud of her. You know, she's a graduate student, she's a TA, she's teaching Spanish. So it's really cool to see how um, by offering students rewarding and quality educational experience, we can forge paths um, to having the community come into the field and, and do research in the field and become uh, future scholars in the field, because I'm a heritage learner, but I, I'm definitely the minority in my in my field, mm-hmm. right? There aren't that many um, U.S. Latinos who step into the field and, and, and do this kind of research. So tell me a little bit about the preparation for the kind of research that you do. What's, what's the training for somebody who's
0: in an SHL, who's a prof or a teacher in an SHL program? Um,
1: I think, I think the, the fundamentally it's linguistics, mm-hmm. um, sociolinguistics in fact, and sociolinguistics is a very broad field, but I think that any sociolinguistic research that looks at um, language planning, Um, uh, majority and minority languages, um, uh, that looks at the educational system and and how minoritized uh, languages are treated within that system. Um, The specifics of how language changes in multilingual settings, um, uh, that looks at structure and phonetics and all those things are great. But for me, the the central part is ideology. Mm -hmm. How do the values and beliefs we have about language impact people in the real world? How do those cu- sh- culturally sh- shared beliefs become um, embodied um, by practice and how do they become um, utilized and and, and um, again enacted in, within institutions? So a sociolinguist uh, can kind of look at those issues, but also the praxis side, how do you take that really broad theory and, and look at the classroom and and think about ways to improve education so that we're kind of mitigating those those terrible things, right, that um, impact students. Um, and so definitely a lot of pedagogy, um, a lot of language education, um, and so yeah, so, so hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, that's really helpful. So yeah.
0: how, many, how many instructors are in the program?
1: How many people work uh, with We currently have, let see, we, we have about eight, eight uh, career faculty. And we've added, um, I think, two graduate students that are joining the team. So that's really exciting because we have a very strong um, faculty uh, base and we're actually bringing in graduate students to train them to become uh, SHL pedagogues. And some of our students are actually specializing in SHL education. Mm-hmm. And so it's serving as sort of a, a lab if you will, to train graduate students to, to um, engage in research and to hopefully become future faculty. Are
0: these grad students in, in
1: Romance languages or are they in linguistics? Uh, now they're in Romance languages. We have a, we, ha- we do, um, we, we just uh, started the PhD in Spanish mm-hmm. and one of the areas that they can focus in is in, in uh, sociolinguistics. Ah. Yeah, so, so we're, that's really exciting and that's pretty recent.
0: So, your most recent book, the co-authored book, Heritage Language Program Direction, Research into Practice, you are a Heritage Language Program director. So, tell us a little bit about that book, the project of that book and what, you, what you're what doing there.
1: So, the, I would say that the, the ethos of the book was to bring together um, the most recent cutting-edge research together in one place um, and to produce a book that will contribute to the institutionalization of SHL programs at universities. And what I mean by that is that usually SHL programs um, are not very stable within universities. They're kind of like this add-on to the language program, they're not fully integrated, they don't receive the funding that they should. Um, they don't. Sometimes they don't have a tenure track faculty that is in charge of them, mm-hmm. which yeah, it adds expertise, but having a tenure track faculty uh, means that it has long-term stability, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so this book is a response to that reality, and it brings together um, advice and um, advice on how to engage in teacher uh, development so that one of the fundamental things to a successful program is having faculty that are trained to teach within the pedagogies that we know benefit students you know, the most. And when students receive a good experience, they, 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 they stay in the program and they continue and, and, and more students come, right? So it's um, teacher development, it's assessment. How do you assess students' progress in, 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 in the program considering that um, so much of language education has been so discriminatory towards uh, multilingual uh, young people? Um, it, it, it gives an overview of all the theoretical frameworks and pedagogical approaches that we understand to be effective in the SHL classroom. Uh, one of the chapters is on critical language awareness and how do you, besides implementing it in the classroom day to day, how do you take that framework and think about it as an administrative philosophy? Mm-hmm. How do you take criticality and the sociopolitics of language And as an administrator, how do you integrate that in everything you do as a leader, Mm. right? How do you develop critical language awareness with your um, faculty? How do you do it with the grad students? How do you convince other people in your department that this matters and this is an issue? Um, And it's hard to change uh, departmental culture. Mm. Not everyone is willing to accept that um, there is linguistic discrimination and that there's no such thing as good and bad language. Those are really hard uh, concepts to sometimes get people to buy in, to, right? So, 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 so the book gives a lot of advice, um, and it's supposed to, it's meant to be a manual for folks that are starting a new program, or graduate students that are applying for jobs in academia that include an administrative position like this one, um, and and yeah, I mean it gives a lot of advice um, to to you know have a healthy functioning um, heritage language program.
0: So. Sergio, we're just about at the end of our time, this will be my last question. Yeah. So you're a junior faculty member, you direct this program, oh, yeah. the, pr- the program is, is doing well, it's relatively young at the University of Oregon, mm-hmm. so what's your dream 10 years down the road? What does the SHL program look like at U of O, and what does it do, what is it doing, how has it changed the University of Oregon?
1: Yeah, that, I'm really glad to ask that question. Uh, I, My dream, my vision for the program is for it to serve as a a hub for educators in Oregon. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a a, a huge disparity and disconnection between what we do in academia and what the reality is in in high schools and middle schools. And so uh, my dream is for the program to A, grow and to, you know, quadruple in size as the university gets more and more Latinx serving. but it. But my. But my follow-up to that is that I hope it. It serves as a intellectual hub for other teachers around the state who are working with Latin young Latinx uh, students, and that they're interested in offering them an educational experience that's rewarding, engaging, that um, contributes to their well-being, uh, to their academic excellence, and and I want the program to be a home for all Oregon high school teachers and middle school teachers that want to learn more and want to develop their pedagogy. And so I think um, I, have, I have a lot of ideas, but I think we'll leave it there that uh, aside from it serving our needs in-house, I want it to be public facing um, to also serve as a pipeline for high school students to come into the university and know that we have a home for them when it comes to language education, that we have something for them that is it's totally for them, right? That's kind of by them because we have, you know, student ambassadors um, and that they'll feel safe, that they can be the, their authentic selves um, with us and that they won't be judged, that they won't be told that what they speak is, uh, is um, incorrect, which what I went through when I was a college student, right? My Spanish was co- completely um, corrected, right? Um, and no, we, we want them to not take away from them, but to add. And so I, th- I, think, I think I'll leave it there, that, that's, that's my dream. Well, I hope
0: your dream comes true. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sergio, so much for talking with us today and telling us about the great work you're doing with the SHL program at the University of Oregon.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I've been speaking with Sergio Losa, Assistant Professor of Spanish and Director of the Spanish Heritage Language Program at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.